Uh, it's my pleasure, actually, to uh, introduce our intern. Um, you actually already know him. Um, this is Robert Gardner. <laughs> no introductions needed, I think. But yeah, I'd like to invite him to come and speak and um, to uh, lift up God's word to us. Yes, Robert, come. Good morning. Um, they told me that they didn't want to uh, read the uh, verses for me because there were there are 16 of them, and that would be kind of long. No worries, we'll go over it with me. Um, but before I begin, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to represent you and speak. Lord, we pray that you will open our hearts to hear what it is that you would have to say to us and that it won't be my voice that people hear, but that it will be what you have to say to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so let us begin with, I actually have no idea if you guys can read that. It's Ephesians chapter 4, and if you don't have a Bible with you, grab out your smartphone or your tablet or Grab the Bible in front of you, underneath, I think is the English Bible. Um, so, with verse 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each, of, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high... He took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does, he, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions? He also ascended in, it, he, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitfulness, uh, deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking in the truth and love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. Now, I want you guys maybe go find this and hold on to it, keep a bookmark in there, um, and see how this uh, goes along. Uh, many of you know who I am. Uh, you guys know my dad. Um, I've been the Cantonese congregation intern for the last 
uh, about uh, eight months to a year. Um, I'm also a student at Regent College, um, where uh, I found an environment that allows for a variety of Christian thinking. Uh, the, the school has Christians from across the spectrum, from Baptists to Alliance Church people, Presbyterians, Reformed, all the way through an entire spectrum of Anglicans. Um, I have a lot of fun discussing certain ideas with them. Uh, sometimes the differences uh, are simp- uh, simply between uh, Baptist understanding of church independence compared to more Presbyterian or Anglican types of churches where the denomination tells them everything uh, and assigns ministers and that sort of thing. Um, other times it's uh, things that are very different. Uh, liturgy, especially the Anglican types, that sometimes certain people are more Anglo-Catholic where they uh, have a very high sense of exactly what has to happen. Uh, words that must be recited. What really gets me thinking whenever we get into those types of discussions are things like when I see someone or hear a guy who's saying, I'm preparing to become a priest. And he always, uh, he does this thing where he crosses himself after a prayer. And he's always got to sing the doxology before a meal. And it makes me wonder what is it about that that he sees value in? Why is it that, is that necessary? Um, when, when, when professors pray and they pray a prayer of so-and-so, somebody who's been dead for 1,800 years, why can't they pray, for their, why can't they pray with their own words? Can they pray with their own words? Is it okay that I do? Um, we get into issues about these two words on the uh, right. In Baptist circles, we call them ordinances. Um, in, an, in an attempt to avoid terms like a sacrament, which means something very different, especially due to Catholic understanding. Um, they use the terms on the right-hand side. We use the terms on the left-hand side. They do mean different things. Uh, Pedo-baptism and infant baptism is the same thing. Um, they talk about having a child born and they want the child to be a part of the church community, and so they baptize the baby. I don't know how I feel about that. I think about believer's baptism or adult baptism and it makes much more sense. It should be someone who's made a free decision of their own consciousness to say, I am a Christian, and therefore I choose to be baptized as a public witness. Um, So we have these types of discussions in school, and it's also true between these words. We call them Lord's Supper, um, usually. Other groups call call it communion or the Eucharist. They have different meanings, understandings. Uh, People, especially the the terms on the right being so tied and so close to Catholicism that they tend to carry a meaning that 
we need to sacrifice Jesus again and again and again, maybe every week. Whereas I believe that Jesus died once and for all, and it's all done. I don't need it to happen over and over again. But these are the types of issues that we discuss. But we find unity in other things. We find what it is to mean, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean when we talk about salvation? Is it the work of Christ or is it something else that we have to do? I tend to argue that we can, we can discuss all these things and they can be things that we might have great opinions on. But as long as we believe that it's Jesus that saved us and only Jesus that saved us, then I'm okay with it overall. Then we can, then we can get into the nitpicky details. Now, what is the type of issue that I get? I have issues with some of these church groups and their usual things that they do. Um, it's certainly understandable. I think we do it as well. People come to church on Sunday. They go through the motions of worship, through music, through word, through prayer, through the offering. In some churches, it's very evident they go through things called liturgy, um, which is on, the, on your bulletin, they would have little bold lines that you read in response to every little thing that happens on stage. Um, sometimes we do that in a PowerPoint presentation. Um, I know sometimes if we, had, if we used hymnals at the back of a hymnal, there might be a section where it's got the uh, reading and response, and you, you do that sort of thing too. I don't think these things are necessarily bad. I think they can remind us um, of what it is that we believe and what, we need to, what the Bible says. But, when we, the question is, after Sunday, when we get out of church, when we walk out those doors, we go off to lunch, usually. Does any of this still matter? Do we integrate what we believe? How do we integrate all those things? The same is true when we go to work the next day. Me, going to school, going to seminary. Does this stuff still matter? Does the spirituality matter, or am I starting to talk about this stuff and not thinking about how it affects me? So, you know, you come to church. You know, today I'm kind of lazy. I'm kind of tired. I got a lot of homework. I don't want to come. Maybe it's like, okay, I do a bargaining thing. I don't want to go to, I, I can't make Saturday night. I can't make Sunday school, but I'll go to service. What I'll do is I'll sit in the back corner and fall asleep. It'll be okay. How does that, how does that work? Why, you, why do you even show up? Are you trying to do something to earn something? Um, I challenge you with this. Luke chapter 10. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. This is all of who we are. 
And we're supposed to love God with all of it. Always. Not just at church. Not just in this building. What I want to suggest is that we shouldn't become too religious. It is very easy for us to revert to this sort of religiousness. This religiosity that I have on on the PowerPoint. It's very easy. It can be very comfortable. You come to church. You give 10% of your income. You may go to a committee meeting. Perhaps you sing a bunch of praise songs. But if your soul and your heart are not in it, then I suggest that it means nothing. The Pharisees did exactly that. In accordance to the law, they did everything correctly. But what happened when they met God face to face? Jesus rebuked them for not having a relationship with him. Let's consider the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who all believed or, or, or who all lived before Moses and the law were given. So there was no proper religion yet. But I don't think they lacked salvation. They knew God and were, and were known by God. Abraham, in particular, was known as the father of faith. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, one of the scariest things that I can think of is in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, chapter, uh, verse 21 to 23, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's important for us to remember that we are meant to be in relationship with God, not just be knowledgeable about Him and follow a set set of rules, not even if they're Christian rules. As a community of Christians, we should be acutely aware of this as well and be continuously encouraging one another to be in better relationship with our Lord and Savior. We must be dependent on God for salvation and for how we are to live. In the church today, we, we functionally operate in something called the clergy-laity divide. The divide didn't exist in the New Testament church. It was rather a construct of what became the Roman Catholic Church. One of my professors at Regent, uh, Paul Stevens, described it this way. That from the 4th to 16th century, the, clay, uh, the clergy-lay d- distinction deepened. The laity ranked on the bottom of the clerical ladder. After his conversion in 312, Constantine, he was the emperor, appointed civil magistrates throughout the empire, organized the church into dioceses along the pattern of Roman regional districts, and consistently used clerical and clerics to denote a privileged class. Under the Gregorian reform in 1057 to 1123, he was the pope at the time, uh, the ministry of the entire Western church was shaped by Roman law. So in the period prior to the Reformation, in the 1600s, six things happened. The Bishop of Rome became regarded as the head of the church on earth. That's in contrast to something we know as Jesus being the head of the church. 
the language of worship ceased to be the language of the people. It became Latin. People didn't speak Latin. People still don't speak Latin. Um, except people that are in the Roman thing. Uh, number three, the clergy dressed differently and were prepared for ministry in an enculturating seminary. Well, I hope I'm not dressing entirely differently, but I'm. then again, there are those who dress in robes and special collars and all this sort of thing. Ordination became an absolute act so that the congregations were no longer needed for the celebration of the Eucharist. Now, the Eucharist for them meant something a little bit different in that it was actually the salvation act for them. Um, but by removing the laity, it meant that you guys could all be gone, and all I had to do was talk to God, and then on your behalf, everything would be done. You had no relationship with God. Number five, the clergy became celibate and thus removed from the normal experiences of the laity. They couldn't relate. They weren't even close to the human experience. And number six, the cup was removed from the laity in the Eucharist. This was because in the Eucharist understanding, they think of the cup as the actual blood of Jesus. And they didn't want to spill it. And so they told they basically came up with the idea that we shouldn't bother to have the people touch the cup because they might spill it, and you don't want to spill the blood of Jesus. Um, anyway, so they basically systematically removed the average person from the experience and the relationship with God that we see demonstrated all the way back to at least Abraham, if not all the way back to Adam, which I think we can make a good point of saying that that was still true. So, maybe what I need to do is go through a few Greek word things with you guys. The first word is kleros, which is the word that we get clergy from. Except in the New Testament, we don't see it meaning what we mean it today. In these three verses, it, it, means different, it just means an heir, an, a heritage, or an inheritance. Every time this, this, this word shows up, these are the words it means. This is how we translate it. It doesn't mean somebody who's separated from the rest of the everyday man. It means us. Then we look at the, the other word for laity, laos. Not a country. Well, it is. But um, this... This word simply means a people. Um, and it's usually in the context of the people of God. So, in the New Testament, we actually don't have a great example of a clergy and laity being divided. In fact, it's just the same group of people. It's the people of God who have an inheritance. Or we are the heirs. Um, in different sentences, they can mean slightly, I mean, the words can are used slightly differently, but it's always in that context of just the people of God. Now, where did we go wrong? If we look at Ephesians 4.12, which was one of the verses in the middle of the page that I told you to put your bookmark in, if we look at verse 12, 11 and 12 in the King James, something called the fatal comma occurred. 
in verse 12. It's in red, and I don't know if you can quite see it in, verse 12, in the middle of verse 12. But it reads like this. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. With that comma, this is how it gets translated. It does three things. It means that, it, it basically means that pastors and teachers are to do three jobs. Perfecting the saints, one. Do the ministry, two. And to edify and build up the body of Christ. They do everything. We don't actually have a bunch of uh, commas in the, in the Greek. We basically have to look at the sentence structure and after reading a bunch of commentaries and scholarship about it, the consensus is that's wrong. That's not what it was supposed to be. What this does is something that was written up as, even as up to 1906 in a papal uh, encyclical called the uh, Mentor Nos. It said that the job of the laity was letting themselves be led and of following their pastors as a docile flock. You had no role. All you were supposed to do is show up, maybe, financially give, and be a financial support system for the church. You had no actual, other than money, you had no need, we didn't need you in the kingdom of God. But like I said, that's not the right way to interpret this particular verse. This is the NIV version, but you will see it also in the ESV. You will see it in uh, the New King James. You will see it in just about every modern version of the Bible, what we read earlier. It does not have that comma. It says that we are to... It says that we're given apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers for the purpose to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That means that there are two tasks, one for each group. One is for the clergy and one is for the laity. You now have a role. The first role that the clergy have is with the gifts of teaching, to equip and prepare the saints. To equip and prepare all of us. Why are we being equipped? That's number two. So that we can do the work of ministry. So that we can do the works of service. Ministry and service, ironically, are the same word in Greek. Um, that's, our, that's the working a attitude. It's supposed to be of service, of a servant. What is, why do we need to do all of this? So that the church can be built up and reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This changes everything. It means that we have a responsibility to act. The role of the pastoral staff is to help encourage and equip the whole people of God. That means all of us, so that we can go out and do the ministry of God. 
The ministry is not what happens in here. In this building on a Sunday morning, your job isn't just to bring your non-believing friends to church so that the preacher can convert them. That's not where it goes. It can happen, but we need to do much more. What I see is that we, the people of God, are meant to be the witnesses of Christ in every aspect of our lives. Christ is the head of the body. We are that body. The professional clergy are here to equip all of us to become the mature body of ministers, each part with different purposes, but working in union toward the same purpose. We are to be knowledgeable, no longer infants, not susceptible to social pressures to conform, nor falling to erroneous theology, nor unbiblical or unchristian uh, are falling to those types of influences of, that are unbiblical. And as each part of us does our work, we will build ourselves up in love. And here's the great part. We are all ministers. So who receives the ministry? The lost souls of the earth. All of a sudden, the Great Commission of Matthew 28 is applicable to us all. Each one of us is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Well, I want Jesus to be around with me until the very end of the age. We're all supposed to go and make disciples, not just believers. Not just baby believers, but disciples. We're not doing this on our own. Rather, Acts 1.8 tells us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're all given the Holy Spirit and thus the power from God to be his witnesses. So where is our Jerusalem, our Judea, and our Samaria, and the ends of the earth? If it helps you think of it as Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and the rest of the world, that's fine. What it means, no matter what, is that we're on mission with God in his ministry throughout the world, no matter where we are placed in it. We have all heard stories of great missionaries in various places around the world that brought Christianity to those lost people. Most of us in this room have some Chinese blood in them. Mine's only half, but uh, I guess nonetheless, I'm still indebted to some missionaries that went to China. Robert Morrison was the namesake of my high school. He was an Anglo-Scottish missionary that worked to translate the Bible into Chinese. And he ultimately died in Guangzhou. Lottie Moon, was the name, who's the namesake of our Christmas missions offering, went and gave everything. She died weighing only 50 pounds because she gave away all her money and all her food to people at, when there was the war uh, in China during uh, the Civil War. And then, of course, there's Donald Gardner. I don't have a picture of him because he's right here. Uh, he also went and spent two-thirds of his life working with the Chinese. These aren't people who went and talked necessarily to their own people. These are the ones that went into foreign missions, that crossed cultures, and, and, and adopted the people that God put on their hearts. Who are the people that God told you to adopt? Could be your own people. Could be right here. Could be somewhere else. Think about it. 
There are places, though, that missionaries that are like this can't go. People that I'm, the, the group of people that I'm studying to become, I guess, also cannot go. They're, the places that these people are located in are in the workplaces and in our classrooms. The people are co-workers, our classmates, our friends, our family. We can't expect to bring all of these people to church and have the professional minister do the ministering. It doesn't work anymore. And it isn't the example set in the Bible. I'm reminded of a story of a, of a son who didn't want to upset his father, um, who was a hard man. And so for 10 years after he became a Christian, he didn't tell his dad anything. He didn't want to make that, uh, he didn't want to have that difficult conversation. And 10 years later, his dad calls him and he says, son, I just went to an evangelical event. I'm not saying that I believe, but if this is what you believe, you've been condemning me to hell for the last 10 years. What your pastors, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, fellowship teachers can give you is equipping. They can give you companionship. They can give you advice. They can give you materials. They can give you ideas. They can give you knowledge. But it is up to you and me to bring Jesus to the people you and I interact with on a daily basis. Those people need Jesus. They need our friendship and our time. They need that personal Christian relationship to experience Jesus. When they get it, then they may come to us, come with us to church. And that would be great. But first, they need to experience a witness of Jesus Christ. And that's us, the laity, the people of God, ministering to them daily, living as Christ. Christians have been doing a poor job of representing Jesus to the world. They are skeptical. Maybe it's because we haven't owned our responsibility to be Jesus for them. We must remember that that we may be the only Jesus that they encounter. We might be the only experience they have of what Jesus really was like. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? What are we as a church going to do? Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we come to you trying to be Christians, little Christs, your representative. Lord, we pray that your spirit will fill our lives each and every day, that we will, in fact, be Jesus to all our friends and our families and our neighbors, our co-workers, that we will be who you want us and need us to be so that we that your message can reach to those people. In Jesus' name, amen.